Rock Bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, guys, it is the 50th episode. How the hell did we get here? Uh, I was initially only planning to do eight to 10 episodes when I launched this thing, but here we are today. So I've been thinking about what do I want to do for this episode. I knew I wanted to be a solo episode. And after some consideration, I decided that we need to go back to the beginning, to the beginning of my adult child healing journey, my adult child rock bottom, aka the tale of two Brian's. Now, I told that story over the course of three different episodes, so I have condensed it all together. If you are new to the pod, you are in for a real damn treat. And I have to say, listening back to it was a very, very surreal experience for me. So on the flip side of this, I have some reflection. So for some reason, uh, you don't want to listen to the tale of two Brians again, although I think it's a story that never gets old. I have included a timestamp in the notes. So if you just want to skip forward to that reflection part. But first, I want to quickly talk about therapy, about finding an adult child therapist. I get this question all the time. Can you recommend a therapist? Um, How do I find a good therapist? So I just made a TikTok video on this. So I'm just going to play the audio of that because I'm lazy and that just (laughs) seems like the easier thing to do here. So let's talk about some tips and tricks on how to find a good therapist as it relates to adult child issues. Please note, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I am just a recovering shit show with a podcast. So this is just based off my own experience and opinion. The first thing that I want to say, this is my experience and seems to be the experience of so many other adult children that I've talked to, that we spent years in therapy without our therapist being able to identify that the the root cause of our issues was that we were adult children and that we were suffering from complex trauma. So if that's your experience, know that you're not alone. I think it's unfortunate. There's just not enough therapists out there that are like really well versed in this, in this subject. You know, I worked with a therapist for years who helped me in many, many ways, but this was not her area of expertise. And I was so hesitant to look for new therapy because I was like, I don't want to have to start over from scratch. I feel like there's so much that I'm going to have to fucking tell this woman before she's going to be able to start helping me. But thank God I finally took the action and initiative. And what I did was I Googled adult children of alcoholic therapists and was eventually led to my therapist who this woman has literally saved my life. Um, I saw her for twice a week for like the first year and a half and I still see her once a week. So some things to keep in mind when looking for a therapist. Here are some questions that I would ask them. I would ask them, are you familiar with the term adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families? Are you familiar with ACOA, the 12-step program? Even if you're not in ACA, I do just think it's a good idea to ask that because it'll just give you a, a way to assess what their understanding and knowledge is in this particular arena. I would ask them if they have experience working with clients that have complex trauma, suffer from complex PTSD. I would ask them, are you familiar with the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study? I had a friend who asked her therapist that and he had never heard of that, which I thought was like a bit of a red flag. I would also ask too, and I think you can be mindful in how you wanna ask it, but you know, do you, have you had experience or have you had to do your own work like related to these issues. They don't have to answer, but in my opinion, this is such a complicated issue and topic. And I really think that a really good therapist is somebody who has personal experience and has had to work through this stuff themselves. So a few days ago, I got a message from someone that asked, what is my opinion on the best form of therapy? And I don't think that there is, you know, an answer to that. I think we all are different. And Certain things may work for one person, not for other, but I think um, it has to be trauma 
informed or focused in some respect. Like, I don't think just general cognitive behavioral therapy is going to do the deal. So there's so many different options. You know, there's EMDR, there's uh, somatic work, there's psychedelics. It could just be regular talk therapy with a therapist who really knows this shit um, and is very knowledgeable about the adult child trauma syndrome. So I think we just have to figure out what is going to work for us. And please don't give up if something you don't think that something's working. Don't think that you're helpless. Just keep trying shit. I promise something will click if you continue to put in the effort. So now for the tale of two Bryans. Brian, the babe they called Brian. He grew, grew, grew and grew. Yes, he grew up to be so I met Brian number one in 2015 on the dating app Bumble. Side note, I am seven years sober at this point. So we went to one of my favorite sushi restaurants in San Francisco for our first date. And I remember being in the Uber on the way to the restaurant and not feeling as nervous as I typically do on a first date. We had had some solid uh, text banter up until this point, and it seemed that our sense of humor is aligned, which is super important to me. His profile said that he was six foot five, which experience had shown me, ladies, that once we get over the six two mark, we can be pretty confident that he's at least six feet tall. And then the big plus was that he had actually called me earlier that day. So he got brownie points there. Take Notes, gentlemen, actually pick up the phone and call a gal up before the first date. So the date's going well. He was tall. He was attractive. He was funny. Conversations flowing. No awkward silences. And then when he ordered his second glass of sake, he asked if I didn't drink at all or if I just wasn't drinking that night. Now, for the first five years or so of my sobriety, having to tell a potential suitor that I was sober was super scary for me. Like, what if they think I'm a loser or I'm boring or whatever? But thankfully, by this point, that fear had left me. That didn't mean that I would just sit down and blurt it out as soon as I arrived on the date. Hi, I'm Andrea. I used to be a crazy drunk, but I don't drink anymore, but I promise I'm still loads of fun. Rather... I would wait for the universe to present the opportunity where it was clear that I was supposed to share this information about myself. And often this did occur on the first date, as was the case here. So I answered him honestly. I told him that I had been sober for seven years and that it was better for him and every living being on this planet that I didn't drink anymore. And he responded well. He said that that was great and congratulated me on such a huge accomplishment. Uh, He then shared with me actually that his sister about two years prior had actually died from alcoholism when she was only 30 years old. My heart obviously broke for him. Uh, But another part of me actually sighed in relief because I thought perhaps this was a good sign in terms of him you know, understanding the disease that I suffer from and being supportive of my sobriety. But then, then the red flag came when he said to me, you know, I've actually been trying to cut back on my drinking over the past few months and haven't been too successful. So I think it's great that you don't drink. I think it'll help me out. Now, perhaps you don't see this as a red flag, but let me explain why it is. Those words would never be uttered by someone with a completely healthy relationship with alcohol. Never. (laughs) So this is now a good time to inform you that at this point, I had an illustrious history of ignoring red flags. Brian certainly wasn't my first ignored red flag, and unfortunately, he wouldn't be my last. I don't know about you, but I am one of those people who, when I decide I like someone, 
which can happen pretty quickly over the course of one or two dates. I am like in it to win it. Bloom where I'm planted. These two dates are actually the equivalent of a 20-year marriage, and we need to make this shit work for the sake of the kids. Because here's the thing. I end up not liking most guys I go on a first date with. Most first dates don't turn into a second date. So when I fall upon somebody that I like and I decide that I'm into them, you can wave 10 red flags in my face. You can tell me you killed your mom. And I'm like, I do. And when's the wedding? So of course, I took that red flag and I flushed that shit down the toilet before I even left the restaurant. I mean, of course I did. He had already asked me on a second date. And therefore, going forward, I would only see the good side of Brian. And I'm sure you'll all be shocked to hear that my sobriety didn't seem to rub off on Brian number one at all, as there wasn't a single date we went on where he didn't drink. Or if this was him cutting back, God knows what he was like before. But I proceeded to flush that red flag down the toilet too, because you guys, he never seemed to get drunk. Sure, he drank every single time we were together, but his mood never changed. So it's fine, right? Plus, I really liked him and we had a lot of fun together. And most importantly, he was really, really into me. So much so that only after dating a week and a half, he asked me to be exclusive. And this was even before we had had sex. I told him that I had a rule of waiting at least three to four weeks to have sex with a new boyfriend. And he told me that I was totally worth the wait. How romantic, right? And then, then after only dating for about three weeks, he told me he was going to visit his parents that weekend and he asked me if I wanted to come. I don't think that I had had a boyfriend ask me to meet their parents since high school. So naturally, I am 100% positive that this is my future husband, and that he'll put a ring on it, and I'll have a baby on board in no time. So we're on our way up to his parents' house, and he informs me that he will not be drinking around his parents this weekend. And not just that, he also asks me not to mention the fact that he has been drinking. And when I ask why, he tells me that there was some sort of terrible incident that had occurred a few months prior when he was drunk and with his parents. And because of this, his parents insisted on him being sober. And... Of course, I said yes, as if it were no big deal, while simultaneously throwing yet another red flag out the car window. I mean, what good girlfriend wouldn't lie to her boyfriend's parents, especially, especially when it's to enable their drinking? Totally normal, totally healthy. (sighs) So we get to his parents' house and... They greet us at the front door with two red flags in their hand. I mean, cocktails in their hand. But it's four o'clock on a Friday, right? So that's completely normal. And then the following day, they start drinking at noon and they don't stop. And then on Sunday, the same thing. They start at noon and they don't stop. But when it was time to go home on Monday morning, I hugged his parents and thanked them for an amazing weekend. Here I was dating such an incredible guy who likes me so much. He wants to wait to have sex with me and he wants me to meet his parents. So who cares that his parents were binge drinking the entire weekend while Brian wasn't drinking at all because they thought he had a drinking problem. I was confident that this was the first family trip of many. I could hear church bells in my head, see our wedding and planned to practice his last name in cursive as soon as I got home. And then, and then he ghosted me. Like, I texted, I called, I was ready to send a carrier pigeon, and I could not get a hold of him. 
And after not hearing from him for two days, I had a panic attack at work and I had to go home. And I couldn't believe that this was happening to me again. While I had never been completely ghosted before, I had had many relationships where the guys broke up with me extremely abruptly, like without any sort of warning sign. I went to bed confident in the relationship. And then the next day they broke up with me. And because that had been um, extremely traumatic for me, the thought that this was happening to me again um, made me want to die. I wasn't suicidal, but I definitely felt like if this is what life is like at seven years sober, what's the point? Um, And when I told this to my mom, she immediately flew out and stayed with me for a week. I felt like I was at the bottom of a dark pit and that the only way out was Brian number one. But then in the midst of this gut-wrenching pain and anxiety, I had my first adult child aha moment. Somehow, some way, the tiniest bit of space was created between my true self and this unbearable pain that I was feeling within. And I realized that there was no way that this reaction could actually be about Brian number one. I mean, I had only known this douchebag for a couple of weeks. Plus, he clearly had a drinking problem. Plus, it seemed his parents did as well. Objectively, that is not enough time to justify this inconsolable heartbreak that I was feeling that was literally making me a non-functioning human that couldn't go to work and needed their mom to take care of them. But then I had an even more profound awareness when I realized that the way I was feeling was a feeling that I had felt often as a child. And for the first time in my life, I saw that there was some sort of connection here that somehow the issues that I encountered in romantic relationships was somehow connected to my childhood. And that was profound um, and helped me to understand why, in spite of making countless promises to myself that I would no longer ignore red flags, I had been incapable of doing so. So it's about a month later. I'm slightly more functional, but still not over Brian number one, Because let's face it, it usually takes me three to four times the length of the actual relationship uh, to get over it. (laughs) But um, I'm at a women's AA meeting where the speaker who had over 30 years of sobriety spoke about an emotional bottom that she had hit at around seven years sober, which was the same as me at the time. And um, as a result of a toxic romantic relationship. And that it was through this relationship and the pain of this relationship that she had come to terms with the actual impact that her childhood had on her. And that the transformation that had occurred from confronting her dysfunctional upbringing was just as profound, if not more, than when she had gotten sober. And she mentioned that she had read a book called Adult Children of Dysfunctional Families. So as soon as I got home from the meeting, I downloaded the book onto my Kindle and I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. Uh, My mind was blown. I related to it even more than I related to uh, the big book, which is the primary text of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it just further confirmed that my inability to act upon the discovery of red flags and my unreasonable emotional responses I had at the end of relationships had little to do with the men I had been dating and everything to do with my childhood. So a few weeks later, I'm back at the same meeting and I see the lady who had mentioned the book. And at the end of the meeting, I essentially sprint over to her and I told her about how her share had impacted me and how I had read the book that she had mentioned And she said that that was great and that she was super happy for me, 
uh, but that I should know that just reading that book wasn't going to be enough for me to work through those issues. She looked at me and she said, it took me many years of therapy and hard work to work through this stuff. This is not something you can fix overnight, and you need to treat this as seriously as you treated your alcoholism. It will take you years to work through all this, but I promise you that if you do the work, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I remember thinking, years, years, I don't have years, lady. I'm almost 30, aka I'm essentially a senior citizen, and I need to have this shit fixed yesterday or at most a few months. And I really just hope that her childhood had been a lot more fucked up than mine. But but to be safe, I decided to take a year off from dating. And I felt pretty confident that a year hiatus and reading that book would surely suffice. Uh, but sadly, uh, self-knowledge would avail me nothing. Just like learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away, Having the realization that my dating struggles were somehow rooted in childhood wasn't sufficient enough to produce any sort of internal shift. So enter Brian number two. So now it is September 2017. And like Brian number one, I met Brian number two on Bumble. We had our first date on a Sunday and we were meeting at a sports bar to watch some football. And I made quite the entrance. Um, Prior to the date, uh, when I was shaving my legs, I had cut my ankle and I didn't have any band-aids. I was hoping that it would stop bleeding by the time I left, but it was not. So I decided to go the DIY route and take a tiny piece of toilet paper, wet it a little bit with my saliva, and then stick that bad boy on the cut. And this method uh, had been successful for me in all previous attempts, but not today. I strolled into that sports bar with my ankle just covered in blood. Uh, and I, I saw him sitting up at the bar and I went up to him and I was like, hi, uh, I need to go ask for a Band-Aid. I'll be right back. Wow, was he in love yet or what? <laughs> Anyways, uh, the date was going okay. He he seemed a little boring, actually, but I just wondered if perhaps he was nervous. Uh, so at the end of the date, when he asked me if he could take me out to dinner later in the week, I said yes. Plus, uh, he had only two beers over the course of the date, and he didn't inquire uh, on me not drinking. So... Hopefully, uh, that was a good sign. So it's the next night, and I'm on the phone with my friend Sasha. And of course, she wants to know how the date went. And especially, she wants to know about his drinking. Fair question, given my track record. And I jokingly answered that he only had two beers, but we both know that there's an 80% chance that he's an alcoholic solely by going on a date with me. (laughs) We both laughed. Uh, It was a joke, but not. Um, And as soon as I got off the phone with her, I saw that Brian had sent me two text messages while we had been talking, both of which were links to One Direction music videos. Um, Let me remind you that Brian, number two, this man is 41 years old at the time. And for those of you who aren't familiar with One Direction, uh, they are a boy band with a target audience of girls between seven to 14. So I text him back. I said, did a 12 year old girl hack your phone? And then about five minutes later, my phone is ringing and it's him. And I pick up the phone and guess what? He is fucking wasted, slurring and all. And what was my first thought? Well, it was, thank goodness there is a legitimate reason for him sending me those music videos. He didn't like boy bands. He was just an alcoholic. (laughs) So the following morning, uh, he texts me and it's clear he's not remember calling me, which I then inform him that he did. He definitely seemed embarrassed and was super apologetic. He told me that this was not normal behavior for him, uh, that he had been entertaining clients and things had gotten a little carried away. 
And he said he totally understood if I wanted to cancel our plans for later in the week, but that he'd really love for me to give him another chance. So here we are. You know, I've just taken this break from dating and I've just read this book, Adult Child of Dysfunctional Families. And I've got some awareness of what, you know, what my issues are, my conditions are. And here we are, and we're presented with red flag numero uno, my opportunity to do things differently. But what I thought was, perhaps this flag was a fluke, and that perhaps, you know, this red flag had just accidentally fallen out of his pocket. I mean, I've watched plenty of football games and seen a a penalty flag, like accidentally get thrown by a referee. So perhaps if I don't go on this date, is that contempt prior to investigation? I mean, not to mention, I am a 28-year-old sober gal, perhaps blacking out on a Monday night, you know, drunk dialing a girl you've just been on one date with and texting boy band music videos is normal behavior for a 41-year-old man. So I decided to give him another chance. You know, I was a changed woman now. After reading this book, I felt confident that if there was even a slight sign of another red flag, that I surely could walk away easily. So we met at an Italian restaurant for our second date, and the food was actually pretty bad, but the date went well. He was profusely apologetic for his boy band drunken sailor behavior from the night before, and again emphasized that that was out of character for him. And to really drive that point in, he did not drink at dinner. And we had a great time. He made me laugh, and he laughed at my jokes. And the conversation was natural and easy. We realized at a certain point that we had the same birthday, January 27th, which was a little bit weird. I told him if he wanted to continue this relationship, that he would need to be okay with celebrating his birthday on the 28th or the 29th because I wasn't willing to share the 27th with him. After dinner, we went back to his apartment. And this is when I told him that I was a recovering alcoholic and had been sober for nine years. And then just like deja fucking vu, he told me that his sister was also an alcoholic, like Brian number one. But thankfully, his sister had gotten sober and was still alive. Now, this should have been the slightest hint of another red flag, knowing that alcoholism was in his genetics. But again, just like Brian number one, I thought to myself, this is a good thing because hopefully that means he will be supportive of my sobriety and understand that I suffer from a disease. And Brian number two didn't drink at all on our next two dates. And then on the fifth date, he had two glasses of wine. And I think to myself, this guy's clearly not an alcoholic because alcoholics can't just have two glasses of wine. To me, two glasses of wine why bother? That seems rather torturous to me. So then one Saturday, we go to a sports bar to watch some college football. It has probably been three weeks since our first date. So hell yeah, guys, can I get a high five for him still being interested in me at the three-week mark? So we're probably there for like four hours. And he had several IPAs, maybe like five or six. And to my alcoholic self, That didn't seem like a lot, considering we were eating as well. I mean, six beers for me would be when I would finally start to feel something. But also, IPAs were not a thing when I was drinking, so I was not aware that they had a higher alcohol content than regular old beer. So the game is over, and at this point, he is starting to seem a little tipsy. He's got a slight slur to his speech. He's acting a little more sillier than normal but no big deal. We are headed back to his apartment for the rest of the night, which meant that he wouldn't be drinking anymore because he purposely did not keep alcohol in his apartment. Side note, that should have also been logged as a red flag, 
when I learned that he purposely did not keep alcohol in his house. So we are a few blocks from his apartment when he tells the Uber driver that he can actually just let us out here. And here, well, here was in front of a bar. And when I asked him what we were doing, he said he just wanted to have one more beer. Fair enough, right? Well, one more beer turned into two more beers, which turned into two doubles of whiskey. And the evening ended with me helping him up three flights of stairs and helping him into his bed. And then I left his apartment and I never saw him again. Yeah, right. You know, that's not what happened. And the saddest thing about it was that ending the relationship with him right then and there wasn't even a consideration to me because I was all in on Brian number two, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and more sickness, to love and cherish till death do us part. And that was just the first of many times where he pulled that whole switcheroo routine where destination his apartment actually meant destination another bar. Like I told you, learning that I was an adult child, reading that book, and not dating for a year hadn't changed a damn thing. Now, up until this point, pretty much all of the guys I had dated had been assholes. Some were drunk assholes and some were sober assholes. But Brian number two wasn't an asshole. He was just a drunk. And in many respects, our relationship was the type of relationship that I had been desperately longing for. Brian number two made me a part of his life. I wasn't his secret girlfriend. He wanted me to meet his friends. He actually introduced me to other people as his girlfriend. We didn't have to drive far distances to go to restaurants to avoid seeing people we may know. And he was always complimenting me. He would surprise me with little gifts. And he never gave up on trying to win my cat over, which never happened. And the other thing about Brian number two was that he didn't drink every single time we were together. There were just as many times that he didn't drink than when he did drink. But when he did drink, it was bad. Like, really bad. Like, leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of a bar, bad. And that happened more than once, y'all. And I vacillated between feeling drunk in love and feeling fucking miserable. And as the relationship progressed, the drunk in love feeling became far and few between. And I acted and felt crazier than ever before. I may have been physically sober, but I sure as hell did not act sober. I was a horrible employee. I was a horrible friend, and I stopped doing all the things that were good for me and that made me feel good about myself because all that mattered was Brian number two. I was either with him or obsessing about him. So now let's fast forward to the day before Thanksgiving. I am a little over two months into the relationship at this point. And I am supposed to be flying to St. Louis that morning where my grandma lived and I was meeting my parents there. But I woke up that morning with that feeling, that feeling that I've talked about several times, that feeling that I felt often as a child, that feeling that I felt when Brian number one ghosted me, that feeling like I was going to die if I didn't have that person in my life. And there was no way I could get on that plane. I couldn't bear the thought of being away from Brian number two for 72 hours. So I called my mom and I told her that my flight out of SFO was delayed, which meant that I would miss my connecting flight and that there weren't any other flights available that could get me there in time for Thanksgiving dinner the next day. All a lie. And this wasn't the first time that I had done this, that I had bailed out on my family for a trip or a family gathering or a holiday because I couldn't stand to be away from a guy. The first time I did it was in the 11th grade. 
So I text Brian number two and I tell him that I wasn't going to be able to go to St. Louis and asked if I could tag along with him to go to his friend's house the next day for Thanksgiving, which he said, absolutely. So later that night, I go over to his apartment and he tells me that his friend's girlfriend, who was the one that was hosting Thanksgiving the next day, said that I wasn't allowed to come, that they had too many people. And he was pissed about that. And he said that if I couldn't go, that he wasn't going to go at all and that he would just spend the day alone with me. And I remember thinking, wow, finally, someone is choosing me. I wasn't plan B to Brian number two. I was plan A. So the following morning, we are sitting in the living room drinking coffee when he turns to me and says, so I've been thinking about it some, and I feel kind of guilty about not going over to their place at all. I mean, I already told them that I was going to bring the green bean casserole. So I'm just going to go over there for a few hours and then we can meet up later tonight. Quite the punch to the gut. Of course, he wasn't choosing me. But in all honesty, it had nothing to do with him choosing me or not choosing me. It had to do with his alcoholism choosing alcohol. So, like any good codependent, I come up with a plan to control and manipulate the situation. I say to him, I have an idea. I have a bunch of Marriott points. Why don't I get us a room at the Ritz-Carlton and we can have a mini staycation? You see, I was afraid that he would completely bail on me, that he would never leave his friend's house once he got there, because I knew that once he starts drinking, he can't stop drinking. So I thought that if I added some stakes to the situation, a hotel reservation, something with a monetary value, there was less of a chance that he would bail on me, which is sad and depressing to reflect back upon. (laughs) And my plan worked. He didn't bail on me. But our mini staycation at the Ritz turned into three days of him drinking around the clock. It felt like being in a shitty motel that you could rent by the hour, except there were a thousand thread count sheets, room service with fancy mini bottles of artisan ketchup, and turndown service that we never actually got because we never left the room, but had we left, we would have returned with some nice little chocolates on our pillow. And I have this vivid memory of looking at myself in the mirror in the bathroom and saying to myself, how the fuck did I get myself here? How was this my life? And I hated myself, and I hated that I couldn't walk away. I hated that walking away wasn't even an option to me. So the week after Thanksgiving, I missed two days of work to nurse Brian number two back to health after a 16-day around-the-clock bender. And I remember looking at him and seeing him sweat and seeing him shake, seeing him unable to sleep And it took me right back to my final days in college when I was withdrawing after a three-week bender. And I knew exactly how he felt. And I sat on the floor of his bedroom and I read him passages from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, over the course of our relationship, we had had several conversations about him being an alcoholic. And at first, he totally dismissed it. But as the relationship went on, he was beginning to see that he did have a problem. But he wasn't willing or ready to do anything about it. So after those two days of me taking care of him, he broke up with me, saying that it wasn't fair what he was putting me through, that I deserved better, and that he couldn't stand to see the way that he was hurting me. But this breakup lasted less than 48 hours before he reached out saying that he had changed his mind. And for the next month and a half, I lived in a hyper-vigilant hellhole, never knowing what to expect, 
never knowing if it was going to be a good day or if it was going to be a bad day, always waiting for the other shoe to drop, always scanning my environment for any indication that he was going to abandon me. And I was a fucking slave to the relationship. If he didn't respond to a text within an hour, I would go into a fetal position level of anxiety, feeling like I needed to crawl out of my fucking skin. But as soon as I would hear back from him, within seconds, I would feel complete relief, just like a fucking junkie. And I walked around with immense shame. I was no longer in denial about what was going on. I knew exactly what was going on. I knew exactly what I was doing. But I was completely powerless. All I cared about was getting my next fix with little concern of the repercussions or what would happen when the quote-unquote high wore off. Just like an alcoholic saying, I'll get sober tomorrow as they take another swig from the bottle. Then one morning in the middle of January, I woke up at Brian number two's apartment and the first words that he said to me were, I don't want to do this anymore. And he was breaking up with me again. But this time it wasn't because of his drinking. It was because he didn't want to be exclusive anymore. He said that he wanted to be able to date other people. And that hurt so much fucking more than him saying that it was because of his drinking and what that was doing to me. And I couldn't get myself to leave his apartment. I became paralyzed. I was literally holding myself hostage at his apartment because I knew this time was for real. I knew it was over and I knew that he wouldn't come back around in two days saying that he had made a mistake. And I felt like I was having a nervous breakdown. I guess I probably was having a nervous breakdown. And I wish he would have just kicked me out of his apartment, but he didn't. Probably because he could see how mentally unstable I was and was scared of what I would do if he kicked me out. And after four hours, I, I called a friend and I told her what was going on and that I couldn't get myself to leave. And she said to me, I'm calling you an Uber and having it take you to my place and you better fucking get in that Uber. And I did. I did get in that fucking Uber. And as soon as I sat down, I had this weird sense of relief wash over me. I can't explain it. I was still in an excruciating amount of pain, but I also had this weird sense of gratitude wash over me. And it became so clear to me in that moment that we had entered this lifetime with a soul agreement. I was brought into his life for a reason, but more importantly, he was brought into my life for a reason. You see, Brian, number two, wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't an asshole. He was a blessing because it was in this moment that I finally saw the seriousness of what I was dealing with, that this was even more powerful than my alcoholism and that that lady had been right. I had to treat this just as fucking seriously as my alcoholism, and that's exactly what I did. This isn't the end of Brian number two. There is a bit of a sequel that I will also be sharing in a future episode. So it is February 7th, 2018, I'm at home, it's seven o'clock at night, and I receive an email from Brian number two. Now, it has been about five weeks since he broke up with me, and throughout those five weeks, I had been doing pretty okay, at least in my standards. I was still in a shitload of pain, I was still rather miserable, but... I was not as miserable as I had been the whole time that we were dating. And I had also been working with my therapist twice a week. But again, 
It had only been five weeks. I was by no means healed. And with that being the case, I responded to his email. So some emails are exchanged. And within an hour, he is at my apartment. So we spend about 15 minutes or so catching up. And then the conversation shifts to the conversation that exes often have prior to having post-breakup sex. The friends with benefits talk. The can we be friends with benefits without one of us getting hurt talk. The I want to have sex with you, but that does not mean I want to be in a relationship with you talk. Now, in this situation, you typically have the person who can handle this. And this is often the person who probably ended the relationship. And then we have the other person, the person who says they can handle it, but they really can't handle it. And they just secretly hope that eventually this will turn back into a committed relationship and ends up just getting hurt in the end. And that had always been me. I had always been that girl. That had been me with Ball Boy. That had been me with Mr. Looks Great on Paper, sleeping with them post-breakup in hopes that they would realize that they couldn't live without me. But guess what? That never happened. (laughs) And it just resulted in more pain and more suffering and more shame. So here's my chance to do something differently, guys. But like I said, It had only been five weeks. I was not healed. While I had healed enough to know that Brian number two was not my soulmate, while I had healed enough to know that sleeping with him would not result in happily ever after, while I had healed enough to know that this would only result in more pain and more suffering, I had not healed enough to where I was strong enough to not do it. So we do it. And we start hanging out again. But things were different than before. This was mostly because of the boundaries that Brian number two set into place. And thankfully, boundaries that I did not try to push. We saw each other once, maybe twice a week. It was typically during the week. We usually hung out at my apartment. Occasionally, we went out to dinner. But I was not going out to bars with him and playing babysitter. And I was not leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of bars. And I was not carrying him up three flights of stairs after a night of drinking. And I wasn't living in a constant trauma response. There were times where my hypervigilance would flare up, but with much less intensity and for much shorter durations. And my state of being was not being dictated by him. I was actually showing up for work, both physically and mentally, and I was not breaking commitments and responsibilities at Brian number two's beck and call. And I had gotten back into the center of the recovery boat. I was going to tons of meetings. I got a few service positions and I picked up a few sponsees. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is that I was a somewhat functional human being. But most importantly, what I was doing differently was that I was not keeping any secrets from my therapist. And this was completely new behavior for me. When I had found myself in this situation in the past with Ball Boy, with Mr. Looks Great on Paper, I wasn't completely honest with a single soul because... I knew what they would say, and I knew that they were right, and I was going to do it regardless because I didn't want to be helped. I didn't want to do things differently. But this time, I did want help, and this time, I truly did want to change. This time, I truly wanted to do things differently. So I was completely honest with her. On top of that, we were working through the unfinished business of my past, the scars of my childhood, and how this had impacted my life as an adult, and especially how this had shown up for me in romantic relationships. And I began to see how the sense of purpose that I felt taking care of my mother as a kid had resulted in me being attracted to those that I could take care of. 
and how, as a kid, the only times I felt that my dad was emotionally available to me was when my mom was drunk and emotionally unavailable to him, and how this had resulted in me being attracted to emotionally unavailable men, and how, as a kid, I always felt that my dad had chosen work over me, and how this had resulted in me being attracted to those who never made me a priority in their life. And how my parents' inability to confront and address the dysfunction within our home had resulted in me tolerating and withstanding dysfunctional, toxic relationships. And so what starts to happen is that I start to slowly heal. And I slowly start developing the characteristics on the flip side of the laundry list. Now, we talked about the laundry list in the first episode, but we did not talk about the flip side of the laundry list, which are the characteristics that we develop as a result of adult child recovery, as a result of reprogramming our faulty childhood programming. We no longer have a compulsive need to recreate abandonment in our lives. We avoid emotional intoxication and choose workable relationships instead of constant upset. We no longer view rescuing or pitying someone as an act of love. And so as I start to slowly heal, I slowly stop being attracted to Brian number two, and I slowly stop enjoying his company. He would leave my apartment, and I would think to myself, that really wasn't very enjoyable. I think I would have preferred to have spent the last few hours by myself. It wasn't like it was torturous. It just was not pleasant. But you guys, I have a built-in forgetter. Many of us have a built-in forgetter. And a few days would go by, he would text me to hang out, and I would totally forget that the last time we hung out kind of sucked. And for some reason, I would think that this next time would be fun. And it never was. And I started to see how this person that I had been convinced that I could not live without, this person that I thought was my perfect person in spite of his drinking problem, was not my person. And that even if he were to get sober, I still wouldn't want to be in a relationship with him. This had nothing to do with him and everything to do with me. I was changing. And I wanted to cut the cord, but I couldn't cut the cord partially because he was obviously still fulfilling some sick, unhealthy need within me, partially because I still felt somewhat responsible for his well-being, and partially because I was afraid of hurting him. Because even though he wasn't saying it, I could tell that he was developing strong feelings for me. Of course, this would be the case, right? As I pull away As my feelings start to wane for him, he wants to get closer and his feelings get stronger. But I just could not walk away. And I was really beating myself up over this. I would say to my therapist, why do I keep doing this? What the fuck is wrong with me? When am I going to change? Why do I keep spending time with someone that I don't enjoy spending time with? And Mary would just reassure me that I was right where I was supposed to be that I would get to the place where I was able to walk away, and she would say, you obviously have more of a lesson to learn here. So is it possible that instead of saying, what the fuck is wrong with me, can you say, what am I supposed to learn here? So fast forward to July. So it's now been five months of this hanging out once or twice a week with Brian number two, and five months of seeing Mary twice a week. And my parents are coming into town. And Brian number two tells me that he would like to meet my parents and that he would like to take them out to dinner. Now, Brian number two had never met my parents before. Brian number two had never expressed an interest in meeting my parents before. So he asks to meet my parents, and I think, fuck, He's asking to meet my parents, and I have absolutely no desire to be in a relationship with him. And it was in that moment that I realized that while I had been continuing to spend time with him out of fear of hurting him, I would only be hurting him more the longer that I strung him along. So it took me a few days, 
but I finally mustered up the courage to do it. It was really fucking hard, and I felt guilty as hell. I told him that while I cared for him deeply, that I saw no future between us, and that I thought it would be best for us to part ways. And he did not take it well. And it was a complete role reversal from when he had broken up with me. This time, he was the one having the emotional breakdown. He professed his love to me, and he told me that he would do anything to be with me, and he told me that he would stop drinking from me. And over the next several weeks, he sent me flowers. He showed up unannounced at my apartment, begging for me to give him another chance. He did and said all the things that I had always hoped and prayed that he would do or say. He did all the things I had always hoped and prayed any guy would do or say. But it didn't matter, and it didn't change anything for me, because finally I was in a place where I didn't need somebody else to complete me. I think it is only appropriate that we show our appreciation and our gratitude to the two Bryans. And I mean that in all sincerity. Thank God for these two guys. Thank God for the Bryans. I'm so incredibly grateful for them. And there isn't a doubt in my mind that our paths crossed for a greater purpose, that that was divinely inspired. And we just had a real damn full circle moment that I shared about a few weeks ago. But in case you didn't hear the episode, on my birthday, January 27th, I got a DM on Instagram from Brian number one. Now, mind you, I had not spoken to Brian number one since 2015. Okay, so here is the message. He said, hello, hope all is well. I've been following you on Instagram and what you're doing is incredible. I'm struggling with alcoholism and have been to 30 day treatment twice since I saw you. And this disease is why I couldn't connect with you. And I am so Sorry for that. Your message is connective, truthful, and no doubt helped many people, including me. So thank you. I wish you success and the best life has to offer. Keep your message strong and thank you again. I cannot read that message without my whole body starting to vibrate. Um, thinking about the pain that I experienced when he ghosted me. You know, I literally wanted to die. I thought I was going to die. I didn't think I would ever feel better ever again. And here we are today. I do want to say that I responded to his message and told him how brave I thought that he was for sharing that and that I'd love to connect with him. If that's something that he's open to, he did not respond. So Brian, number one, if you're listening, um, I would love to connect sometime. Brian number two has also been to treatment a few times. I feel like his disease just continued uh, to progress after we broke up. I was recently texting with him and he uh, offered this information without me asking, but he told me that he is now taking an abuse um, Mondays to Thursdays and, and then just drinking on the weekends. Uh, if you're not familiar with what an abuse is, uh, that makes you violently ill when you drink. So that is how he is uh, controlling his his drinking now. I was thinking about in the in the AA Big Book in that chapter three, more about alcoholism, where it talks about all the different ways that we try to control control our drinking. You know, uh, taking a trip, not taking a trip. You know, never drinking alone, switching from scotch to whiskey. I think we should also add uh, taking an abuse Monday through Thursday. Um, but I wish both of them the best. And I really hope that one day they can both get sober because they are two good dudes. You know, these, these guys were not bad dudes. Um, none of the guys that I dated, honestly, were bad dudes. They were all just sick dudes. And guess what? I was a sick, sick gal too for a while. Um, I wanted to share a, an email that I got uh, today. It was very, very fitting um, from someone named Chris. And so this is what he said. I'm a recovering alcoholic that had two years away from a drink, which I'm learning now at 81 days sober was not sobriety, but replacing the drink with a relationship. We met at 14 days sober. She was five years at that point. And while I had been in the room for years prior and heard the usual reservations about dating in the first year, 
I did not follow this advice. I did check with my sponsor, but he knew this woman since she was in diapers and knew me from being in and out of the rooms for years and thought that it was destined. Well, it was destined to fucking suck. (laughs) Anyway, I listened to episode five of your podcast and could so fully relate. This is the second long-term relationship I've ever had at 39 years old. And the second time I'm having this huge sensation that I'm a total fuck up and lost the best person for me in the whole world, even though that thinking doesn't actually stand up to scrutiny. All this to say, thank you for providing these personal stories as it is so helpful to know that other people experience this same feeling and that there is a way out of this demoralizing cycle. Oh, Chris, (laughs) can we all just all reflect upon all the people that we... Uh, were in relationships with once when they ended and we were convinced that they were the perfect person. We were convinced that they would be the last person we'd ever be interested in or uh, who would be interested in us who now make us kind of throw up a little bit in our mouths. I was reading recently in the ACA Big Red book, it says, Before we found ACA, most of us blamed ourselves for bad choices, when in reality, we had no true choice. Overpowering feelings ruled our lives through compulsions and obsessions. And this is just so powerful because I too, Chris, like what you said in your email, feeling like a total fuck up. I mean, God, I just felt such a shame at my relationship, my behavior in relationships, and uh, why couldn't I do things differently? Why did I just keep finding myself in these toxic relationships, unable to walk away? Um, And I was so, so hard on myself. But what I didn't realize at the time was that I was literally suffering from trauma. And I literally did not have a choice. Like, I did not have a choice in the matter Just like an alcoholic, you know, it's like once we take a drink, uh, all bets are off. And kind of the same goes in romantic relationships when we have unresolved trauma. We truly become powerless. And it is just the most miserable feeling in the whole wide world. Also in the Big Red Book, it says, as children, we develop the ability to dose ourselves with fear, doubt, or anxiety to match what we saw in our parents. We did this to survive. As adults, many of us sought out fear or emotional pain to match our feelings from childhood. And that was the craziest thing for me to kind of understand that not only was my picker broken, but I was literally seeking out these people who were going to make me feel like shit. Like, honestly, like I was literally seeking out people or attracted to people who were going to make me feel the way I so desperately tried to avoid feeling all the time. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just interesting, right? Cause at least with like drugs and alcohol, like sometimes there was some sort of a euphoria, euphoric high. But when it comes to this stuff, it feels like shit, you know, like it really is miserable. And it says also in the big red book, it says we seek these inside drugs because they are familiar, not because they make sense. Some of us jokingly said, my drug of choice is fear, or I must be addicted to chaos. To the outsider, we seem odd or stubborn, but to another adult child, we are recognized as struggling with para-alcoholism. And so I created this podcast uh, to let you know that you're not odd or stubborn, um, that you're not inherently flawed or unlovable um, or unfixable. You're an adult child. And that's nothing to be ashamed about. And in fact, I believe it to be something to embrace and lean into because I feel like it's these experiences, this pain in which we get to take that and turn that into the fuel of living our very, very, very best lives as our highest and best selves. Um, Truly, I wouldn't take back any of the pain God, it sucked, though. (laughs) So it is possible to heal. Broken picker syndrome is real. There's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about having a broken picker or being an adult child. 
And there are so many people out there who have felt just the exact same way that you do and have got to the other side. So thanks again, Chris, for reaching out. It has just been the craziest damn experience, y'all. The success of this podcast, the response it's been getting, this insanely profound impact on people. And I need to say that out loud because as here I am, my second week as a full-time podcaster, recovering shit show content maker, there still is a part of me, it's pretty small, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15% of me that doesn't think I can be successful and that I can't run with this. But that's bullshit because look at everything that has occurred to get me to this point. There's no way that this is not going to all work out, you know, and I truly believe this is my purpose. Um, And I have to just stay rooted in that belief that my higher power is not going to let me go to waste. But I need all the help I can get. And I'm going to keep asking y'all for your damn help until I don't need to ask for your damn help anymore. Ways that you can help me tell people about the podcast. Give me a damn five star rating on Apple or Spotify. Uh, Join the Patreon. That's where I host weekly support groups. Um, You can also make a donation through Buy Me a Coffee. Uh, I am looking for sponsors for the podcast. I am looking for billionaires who just want to throw me a little bit of money. Um, As I said, I'm going to keep asking for y'all's help until I don't need your help anymore. The card that I pulled today from Gabby Bernstein's The Universe Has Your Back uh, card deck, it was so damn fitting. It says, I'm unapologetic about what I desire and trust what I focus on will grow. Again, I'm unapologetic about what I desire and trust what I focus on will grow. I do just want to give a quick shout out to my newest Patreon members. Guys, these are the people that you want to emulate. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Ed, Aaron, Cassie, Rand, Patricia, Sasha, Julie, Ashley, Lexi, Sandra, Emily, Elizabeth, Adrian, and Janet. You guys are amazing humans. <laughs> Let me just tell you that. Uh, so, yeah, that is all for today, guys. Thank you so damn much. You know, this is this is our journey. I truly believe this. This is our cause. This is our fight to fight. Um And I just cannot put into words the amount of love and gratitude that I have for each and every damn one of you. So you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. Please go and follow me on Instagram. It's hard to build my followers on there for some reason. TikTok's better. And I will see you guys next week for another amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's gonna be a goodie, I promise. Let it all go.